So John chapter 11 is where we are today, as you heard from our scripture reading. John chapter 11, we've been looking at various conversations that Jesus has had with people throughout uh, the gospel of John. And uh, we've looked at Jesus discussing um, uh, and and talking to Nathaniel and and kind of a uh, somewhat of a would-be skeptic who becomes a committed follower uh, of Jesus. We've, we've seen Jesus interact with, uh, with those who are, who are seeking, like Nathaniel in John chapter 3, to the outcast, like the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and, and looked at uh, Jesus uh, navigating uh, multiple conversations in John chapter 9 as he heals a man born blind at birth, uh, and, and considering uh, particularly as we looked at Jesus and, and sickness, but also how Jesus uses the healing of the blind man to, to discuss spiritual blindness as well, that the, the physical blindness of the, of the man in John chapter 9 speaks to the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and even the disciples to a degree of, of really understanding that Jesus sees us, the comfort and encouragement that comes with that, but also uh, the question of do we see Jesus? Do we believe in Him and trust in Him as He reveals Himself to be. Well, today we come to John chapter 11, and, and it piggybacks in some ways on John chapter 9 as we saw Jesus navigating uh, those who were uh, addressing this man born uh, blind. And now we're coming to John 11 and the tragedy of Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, who has died, who was sick initially and then ends up dying uh, before Jesus reaches Bethany, uh, where his family is from. And we're going to see Jesus interacting with those who are suffering and those who are hurting. Our world is filled with suffering, filled with hurting. In many ways, some of you know this, uh, perhaps more personally than others, um, this life will be filled with great suffering for all of us in some way, shape, or form. All of us will experience the pain of living in a broken world, of being sinned against, of the consequences of our own sin, and just the, the reality of, of a broken world. <clears throat> it can come in different forms and it can come in different times, but the truth is everyone is going to experience it. And we are living in many ways through a terrible national and, and, and honestly an international tragedy of sorts that has unfolded over the last year and a half. This is kind of once in a hundred years type of, uh, of experience that we're going through, which sometimes it seems so normal now, as we think about this past year and a half, but it's, uh, it's a reality uh, that, that has come with great suffering, great tragedy, great hurting for people who have gotten sick, as well as their loved ones with those in the medical field, with, with those in nursing homes and assisted living, all kinds of, uh, of tragedy that's unfolded as it relates to COVID-19 uh, over this past uh, year and a half. And, and in many ways, I've pointed this out before, but it kind of crystallizes uh, crystallizes here uh, in my mind uh, in, in, in a way that I think is fitting to understand what Jesus uh, is going to show us in John chapter 11. And, and that's the connection between this national tragedy that we're experiencing with this pandemic and the, the national tragedy that was September 11th, 2001. Obviously, two totally different experiences. The nature of them uh, are different, but in many ways, the whole nation... Uh, and, and the watching world, COVID-19 in a greater way, was experiencing the same thing at the same time, and, and it causes all kinds of questions about the significance and the meaning of life, and why are we here, and what's the purpose of it all, and what happens after we die, and uh, I remember uh, my own testimony. I came to know Christ in October of 2011, and I don't, I don't think that it was disconnected from the experience of facing the finality of life. And the previous month in September, I remember coming home from school, being in ninth grade when um, when the Twin Towers fell, and just for the first time realizing, like, I, I'm not guaranteed life in my young, uh, you know, young teenage years. You're invincible, so you think. And uh, for the first time, being faced with the reality of death. And as I was thinking about all of this and studying for this sermon, um, there's a, a pastor. Um, John MacArthur, who was interviewed on Larry King Live shortly after September 11th, um, and in the conversation between Larry King and, and John MacArthur, he was asked a question, uh, un, uh, unprompt, without advance notice, Larry King asked uh, Pastor MacArthur, what does this mean? 
what does it all mean? You can just kind of imagine if you if you kind of go back. Sometimes I love just kind of one of the fabulous things about YouTube. You can kind of go back in history a little bit. I was just uh, this week watching the newscast uh, from September 11th and 12th. Just you know a few a uh, few little clips here and there of just the reporting of what was taking place and the the sense of solemnness, the sense of pain, the sense of uh, of just the weightiness of what had happened. I, I remember it being that way, driving to record sermons back in April last year and, and hearing a news story in CNN of a, uh, of, a, of a woman whose husband died in the hospital and she couldn't be there and just having to FaceTime with him and getting a call from the nurse that what had happened and then reading stories about how nurses would fill gloves with water to, to put on the hands of those who are passing without their loved ones so that they could feel the presence of someone, someone near them when they died. Like just hearing those stories as I drove, you know, to, uh, with no other cars on the road, which was eerily, you know, weird uh, to drive on the road with no other cars on a Saturday to go, you know, record a sermon or a Thursday when we would record our sermons and just the, the weightiness of it all. Uh, it's, a, it's a scary thing. And, uh, and that question that Larry King asked, I think, is a question whether, whether it's been asked of you or you've thought it in this dramatic of a way I think if you you know if you're paying attention I think we we all have kind of thought to ourselves what is happening what does all of this mean and when Larry King asked that question MacArthur's response was this which he said I didn't know I was going to be asked this question this is just what the Lord put on my heart to say and so on CNN on Larry King live in response to the question of what does this mean? He said, you're going to die and you're not in charge of when. You're going to die and you're not in charge of when. Now, you could accuse me of being somewhat introspective as I just celebrated my 34th birthday yesterday. Um, I was just saying this before the service, but uh, if I live a semi-average life, I've now lived half my life. Um, if I live a long life, like a super long life, uh, like the lady who lived to 107 and ate bacon every day uh, of her life, then I've lived a third uh, of my life. Uh, most likely it's the truth probably, if God is gracious, is somewhere in between. So you do the math for wherever you're at. <clears throat> I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer and bring that up. Um, but the Bible teaches us to number our days and to ask ourselves this important question, what does it all mean? And to face the reality that we're all going to die. And on the way to death, we will face many sufferings and trials and hardships and pains and hurts. <clears throat> That's a fact. Some of you may experience suffering now. Some of you may um, be preparing yourself for some hardship or trial ahead of you. All of us should ask the question, are we ready to suffer well? In our hardship and trial now, are we responding well to what we're experiencing? Maybe it just seems like a small and light thing that we're experiencing. Maybe it seems like an overwhelming uh, kind of experience that, that you're walking through. But all of us have to ask ourselves either how will we or how are we responding to hurt and pain in our life? <clears throat> and then the question that all of us should be of, uh, concerned about is, what does Jesus have to say about these things? What does Jesus have to say about suffering? What does Jesus have to say about hurting? How does He respond in our suffering and in our hurting? What does Jesus have to say in the face of death? Well, that's the question that's answered in John chapter 11. We saw the introduction in verses 1 through 6 of uh, this man named Lazarus, who before this point we haven't been introduced to, but we know Lazarus in connection to Mary and Martha. Uh, I love just this point of how the Bible fits together, how the Gospels fit together. Up until this point, uh, Mary and Martha haven't been discussed really in the Gospel of John. It's in Matthew 10 uh, where we see, or excuse me, Luke 10, 38-42, where we see that uh, story of Jesus interacting with Mary and Martha and and uh, in, in, in the, the conversation of choosing what is best and sitting at the feet of Jesus to listen to His Word. So the Gospels presume knowledge of one another and, and we see the continuity and correlation between the Gospels all telling the same story about Jesus from four different perspectives. Uh, and here we're introduced to Lazarus, who we know by way of Mary and Martha. 
And it says it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. At this point, Lazarus is just sick, and Mary and Martha send word to Jesus and said, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He's sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And it says, now Jesus loved Mary and Martha, or excuse me, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two, day long, two days longer in the place where he was. We'll, we'll come back to the significance uh, of all of that. But by, by way of introduction, we see the, the close relationship that Jesus had with Mary and Martha. Uh, we see the, the relationship that he had, though we know little about Lazarus as a person, the, the love which Jesus had for Lazarus. It says there in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And we see here, like in John chapter 9, we'll see some parallels between John 9 and John 11. In fact, the, uh, the, the reading of our passage before, uh, before I came up here ended with verse 37, in which the crowd makes the connection that Jesus healed the blind man. Could he not have kept this man from dying? So we see this connection between John 9 and 11. Uh, and, and just like in John 9, Jesus looked at the blind man and said that he wasn't born blind because of the sin of his parents or his own sin, but for the glory of God, that I would display my glory through him. That was the sixth sign of seven signs in the Gospel of John. Uh, and these signs, as we looked at last week, are intended to point to who Jesus is. They're intended to reveal his glory. And so Jesus says that that Lazarus' sickness and, and ultimately his death <clears throat> is going to be for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. That He's going to display His glory, the power of God, the, the, the purpose of God, the identity of Jesus in raising Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, we're going to see that that Jesus' display of His glory in raising Lazarus from the dead is also at the same time a foreshadowing of Jesus' own work that He would do on our behalf through His death and His resurrection. You see, the capstone of this passage, which we'll come to in a minute, is verses 25-26 through 26, when Jesus declares to Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And... and and as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we're, we're going to, to get a sense of what Jesus is going to do uh, in just a few days' time uh, as He is put on the cross and raised from the dead. But though Jesus' emphasis is on resurrection, we're going to see that Jesus' death is also within view in John 11. We, we, we won't go into depth here, but in verses 8-17, through 17, the disciples are scared about Jesus going back towards Jerusalem to Bethany because Jesus has had an increasing uh, opposition from the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes, who have been plotting and who have been looking for ways to trap Jesus and to arrest Him and even to kill Him. And so they know that if Jesus goes to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, He's also going to Bethany and increasing the likelihood of Jesus Himself being being uh, arrested and ultimately crucified. And in verse 16, Thomas, who we'll look at next week in John chapter 20, here isn't doubting, but as a realist, uh, expressing a measure of faith when he says, let us also go with Him, that we may die with Him. Everyone knew what was at stake as Jesus went back to Jerusalem. The disciples knew they were going with Jesus and ultimately going to face their own death. And then again in uh, verse 53, after Jesus uh, goes uh, and raises Lazarus from the dead, it says that from that day on, the Pharisees and the scribes made plans to put Jesus to death. So here in this passage, we see Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead to display His glory. But in displaying His glory and raising Lazarus from the dead, He's also foreshadowing the work that He came to do, which was for Himself to die and for Himself to rise from the dead. This is the seventh and final sign. This is the, the final sign that Jesus does before He ultimately uh, is going to prepare to, to go to the cross and, uh, and to die 
uh, for our sins. It's the last way in which He reveals who He is and why He came. And in it, He shows us that in Him is life. Not just life eternal, but we're going to see that in Him is life, new life now, and eternal life forever. But it's unfolded for us in the context of the suffering and the grieving of Mary and Martha. And so what I want us to see as we look at verses 17 uh, through 53 um, are two things related to, to, to walking through sorrow and hurting. The first is how we struggle in our sorrow and in our hurting. And the second is where we find hope in our sorrow and our hurting. <clears throat> so uh, first, consider how we struggle. Look, look at verse 17 and just kind of as you fall back over uh, verses 17 through 27, as Jesus comes to where Lazarus was, to Bethany, which was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, it says that Mary and Martha were there and many people were with them consoling, grieving the passing of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was sick when Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. Jesus stayed two days where he was, and then he traveled. So most likely a day to get to Jesus, two days Jesus stayed, and then a day for Jesus to travel. And, G and now as he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, verse 20, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. And then these uh, crucial words in verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And Martha responds, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And then in verse 28 through verses 37, Jesus is going to interact with Mary. But, but in particular, I want to pull out here before we, we go to, uh, to Jesus' conversation with Mary. One of the things that we struggle with and that we see here in Martha's conversation with Jesus, one of the things we struggle with in our suffering and in our hurting is understanding understanding it's it's the the question of why uh, when we go through pain when we go through loss when we go through sorrow we're all left asking why and consider two things that we have a hard time understanding two things that we see here in this passage we have a hard time understanding God's purpose in our sorrow and in our hurting and we have a hard time understanding God's timing in our in our sorrow and in our hurting Considered how Jesus tells us that Lazarus' death is for the glory of God. Now, this is unique in particular to Lazarus. Not every sickness is going to lead to the revelation of Jesus' divine power and miraculous uh, work of raising someone from the dead or miraculously healing them from their sickness. It doesn't all work out in the way that uh, it unfolds here in John chapter 11, but what's true in every sickness, what's true in every sorrow, what's true in every hurting is that God has purpose in it because God is at work in all things for His purpose, Ephesians tells us, for the accomplishment of His purpose and for His glory. God is always working out His plan and the, the struggle is we don't always see it. We don't always see God's purpose. And, and what I love here is uh, is with uh, the struggle of understanding all of this, <clears throat> Martha is honest. And, and on one hand, we can read her words kind of in a cynical nature. I think we live um, in a time where we expect people to kind of be cynical towards God. And, and, and when they go through suffering, that the question of where were you, God? And kind of that accusation and that anger towards Him. I, I think what we see here in Martha is a genuine sense of, Lord, where, if you would have been here, this would have been different. Not because she's angry. Perhaps she is. Uh, we don't get that here. But what, the reason I don't think that she's just uh, total, totally cynical and angry is because she follows it up by saying, but Lord, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. There's this sense of you weren't here 
And I know if you would have been here, things would have been different. I don't understand all of this. I don't, I don't get, she didn't hear Jesus say that this was for His glory. The disciples knew. Martha didn't know any of that. She didn't know what the purpose of God was in the death of Lazarus. All she knew was her pain and her grief. And there was one person that she was confident that could fix it. And that was Jesus. And, and I find that encouraging when we go through our own sorrow and our own pain, I, I'm not saying that you have to understand. And, and in fact, when we look at the examples like Job's friends, the, the biggest way we get ourselves in trouble when we're trying to encourage someone in their suffering and their sorrow is by being the friend who tries to explain it all, right? Like, just sit there and cry with me is what Job's friends. When they did that, they were at their best. The problem was when they opened their mouth and they tried to figure out why Job was suffering. They didn't know how God intended to glorify Himself through Job's suffering. And in the same way, we can struggle to understand God's purpose, just like Mary and Martha. And in fact, look at how um, Mary says the same thing. Martha says um, in verse 20, 21, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. That struggle to understand God's purpose and His timing, as well as that sense of, uh, of somewhat of a, a hope that, that Jesus is here, He's the one who can fix that, is expressed in Martha's words. But when Jesus had said this, uh, Martha goes to get Mary, and Mary comes to Jesus in private. He hasn't yet come into the house and to the, to the commotion. Uh, when, when a death happened in Jewish culture, there was, uh, there was a great time of mourning. In, in fact, we see here that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, were pretty well connected. They had a large group that was there suffering, or that was there, you know, kind of supporting them in their suffering. Uh, in fact, during this time, if, if there wasn't enough mourning going on, there were professional mourners who would come and weep and wail with the family to not, not, not out of a sense of like trying to put on a show, but as befitting the loss of someone that you love. And so there's a lot of, of support around Mary and Martha here. Um, and so Jesus meets with Mary in private. She comes out to him before Jesus goes in there to Bethany and to where she is. In verse 30, it explains that. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house saw this, they followed uh, Mary. So it wasn't all that private after all. But Mary comes out to where Jesus is and look what she says. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We have a difficult time in our sorrow and our hurting, understanding God's purpose. Why is this happening, God? How can you be glorified? I don't always see it. I don't get what you're doing. As well as understanding God's timing. If you had been here. Now, I mentioned earlier that Jesus in verse 6, it says that He waited two days before coming. We know that no matter what, most likely, uh, had He waited uh, had, he, had he gone uh, immediately, Lazarus perhaps would have died even before he got there because it was another day's journey back. But uh, commentators uh, uh, try to understand and grapple with why did Jesus wait four days? There was a, an understanding in Jewish culture that perhaps for three days, since they didn't, uh, since they didn't embalm in, in Jewish culture, they just put in the tomb uh, and there were no doctors to come and do an autopsy and kind of certify that a person was dead. Sometimes a person would would be revived of sorts after maybe a day or so of sickness. And so they didn't just kind of carry them off right away, but uh, they, they prepared their body for, for, uh, for burial. And, and usually it was on the, after three days, it was certain that the person was dead, that there was a belief of uh, this kind of a later belief uh, in, uh, in Jewish culture that the spirit would hover above the body for three days until it was clear once the body underwent um, my favorite word from uh, watching CSI back in the day, rigor mortis, you know, after the body goes through the process where they're clearly dead, the color begins to change, the spirit departs on the fourth day um, after the third day because it's clear that the person is truly dead. And so commentators um, point out that as Jesus waits four days, He's coming to display without a shadow of a doubt His power and authority to raise Lazarus from the dead. That Jesus has the power over death and the grave. And there, it cannot be questioned. The authority and the power of Jesus displayed. And in fact, the response to what Jesus had done indicates that the, the, the religious leaders of the day knew 
that what had taken place would be irrefutable and that they had to put Jesus to an end. Otherwise, the Romans would crush Israel because of this religious fervor around Jesus uh, is, is what we're going to see. And so uh, here in all of this, Jesus has a purpose in waiting for uh, His arrival in Bethany. But it just raises the question when you see Mary and Martha's words. It's so, uh, I think, uh, relevant to us as we have gone through our own suffering and our own pain. Perhaps you've experienced this in a personal way as you've lost a loved one, a family member, or, or experienced some great disappointment or the breaking uh, of trust or the ending of a relationship and you experience all this. And the question is, why? Why now? There's the why, the understanding God's purpose, and the why now, the understanding God's timing. And wrapping our minds around why it has to be this way. Why now? Why do you have to take them before me? Why do they have to go when I'm so young? Why do they have to die when they're so young? Understanding God's timing. God, if you would have been here, you could have fixed it. If you, if you would have just done this, God, you could have changed it. Just like Martha, there's this belief that Jesus, you're the one that I need and I know that can work in my situation, but you weren't here. Why aren't you here? And we have, an underst- we have a hard time understanding God's purpose and His timing. And we see that unfolding in Jesus' discussion with Martha and Mary. But the second thing we have a hard time doing uh, in the face of our own sorrow and, uh, and our own hurt is believing, is trusting God. And, and in fact, that is the other significant reason why Jesus has done this. He's going to display His glory, but through displaying His glory, Jesus intends both for His disciples as well as for Mary and Martha and everyone who is watching, He intends to display His glory. John's told us this already. The purpose of His Gospel is so that we may believe. The reason He's going to do this, He says in verses 14-15, through Lazarus has died, He says, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. That's not a callous statement. Jesus is, was saying this, I'm glad I was not there so that as I raise Him from the dead, you may believe. You may believe me. Believe in who I am. As Jesus articulates who He is to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He ends with this question, do you believe this? And then in verses 41-42, through as Jesus gets ready to raise Lazarus from the dead, He prays, Father, I thank You that You've heard me. He's now praying so that people will hear Him. He says, I'm saying this, that you always hear me, I've said this on the account of the people standing around me right now that they may believe that You have sent Me. In all of this, just like we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus is working to strengthen the faith of the disciples and bring to faith those who don't yet believe. In every sorrow, in every hurting, God is working to strengthen the faith of of His followers and to draw to faith those who don't believe. We, we, we don't always understand it. We may not get how he's, how he's doing the particulars and understanding His timing and the particulars, but as we zoom out and we look at what He's doing here in John 11, and we can, we can see throughout the rest of, of Scripture that God is always working in our sorrow and our hurting to strengthen our faith and to draw to faith those who don't believe. And here in a minute, we're going to press into how believing that Believing that He's always working in our sorrow and our hurting doesn't make us glib about sorrow and hurting. It doesn't make us bottle up our grief and our emotions with sorrow and hurting. It doesn't make us dismiss the sorrow and the hurting of others as not being ultimately significant because in the end God is working. No, no, no. Far from that, it actually frees us and enables us to grieve. It enables us to to cry and to weep with those who weep. It enables us to enter into pain and sorrow and suffering, not as people who dismiss it, but as people who know that there is a God who is with us in it. And so we we see this struggle to believe, and Jesus is working in in all of these interactions, as we've just looked throughout these verses, for the purpose of drawing people to believe and to strengthening the faith of His disciples. So we struggle in sorrow and in our hurting to understand what God's doing, why He's doing it, why He's doing it now, His purpose and His timing, and to believing. 
And particularly, I, I, I want us to, before we, we move on to where we find hope, I want us to look at, at the, go back and look at the interaction between Martha and Jesus uh, in verses 20 uh, and 20 through 26. When Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But now, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus says this beautifully ambiguous statement. Your brother will rise again. Mary, or excuse me, Martha's response tells us that she has orthodox theology. She believes rightly that there is a resurrection at the end. The Old Testament teaches and the New Testament teaches that there is a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. That in the end, on the last day, is a resurrection. That the dead will be raised. And she says, Jesus, I know that you're going to raise the dead in the end. And, and Jesus presses and He says, I'm talking about something more than that. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, he, yet he shall live. That's the hope for those who die, that there's life after death. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. That's the hope of us who are living. That death isn't the end. That it's not ultimate. Do you believe this, He says. And do you notice she moves from believing a general truth about the resurrection on the last day to expressing particular belief in the person of Jesus? You see, when, when we talk about what do we believe, yes, there's this believing rightly about the truth of these things, but the believing that Jesus is pressing here is the believing on Him, the pressing into Him. I remember... I remember when my dad passed away and I was prepared to teach uh, in church the following Sunday and I decided to teach on 1 Corinthians 15. I believed 1 Corinthians 15 before anyone close to me ever died. That, that those who are in Christ, they will be raised. That Jesus was the first fruits of our resurrection. Just like He was raised, we too will be raised, 1 Corinthians 15 says. But that general truth, theological truth that's grounded in God's Word became much more real to me in the, in the face of my own suffering, my own sorrow, my own hurt as I lost someone I loved. And it pressed me not, not into this deeper sense of like, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm believing just this general truth, but it pressed me deeper into, into trusting Jesus. That I needed Him. That He was my hope. Yes, my hope is that one day when I, when I die and I'm face to face with Jesus and I'm raised from the dead, that I'll one day see my dad who came to faith in Christ and I'll rejoice in life forever with him. But the hope isn't just that experience. The hope is in the person of Jesus and what he's accomplished. And that's why Jesus says, not do you believe that there will be a resurrection at the end, but do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Jesus is saying, in me is resurrection life. In me is the rising from the dead and the new life now and the eternal life forever. Those who have me can face death with certainty and can live without fear of death. Because I'm the resurrection and the life. And so here we move from the, the, the way in which we struggle uh, in the face of sorrow, in the face of our hurt, to where we find our hope in our sorrow, in our hurting. And it won't surprise you, but the answer is Jesus. The answer is, is who Jesus is and what He's come to do. If I could break it, break it down for us, I could, I'll say it in this way. It's the presence of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus that we ultimately find our hope. The presence of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus, those two things can't be separated. Last week we said that a Christian is someone who knows that they are needy. When we gather as a church, we don't gather as people who have it all figured out. We gather as a people who know we're needy and we believe that Jesus is all that we need. Mary and Martha believed that there was one person that could change their circumstances. And that was Jesus. And they knew if Jesus was there, everything would have changed. And they know that now Jesus is there, that God will hear Him if He cries out to Him. It, it's it doesn't seem that Martha believes that Jesus can or will raise Lazarus from the dead in this moment. In fact, when it comes time in verse 38 to remove the stone, Martha is the one who speaks up and says, Lord, he's, he's like dead dead. Not like mostly dead, but dead dead. All the way dead. And he stinks. Don't roll away the stone. 
She, she trusted that in the end, that, that Jesus would, would, that there would be a resurrection of the dead, but, but Jesus pressed her to believe him, and she comes to see him as the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. You see, we find hope in knowing the presence of Jesus, and, and we see this unfold uh, looking at verse 38 uh, after uh, Jesus interacts with Mary. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it says that uh, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse in all the Bible that we should all memorize this week. John 11, verse 35. Though every child knows it because it's the shortest verse and they're ready to do the Bible drill, it's filled with such profound truth and encouragement for every believer and for every person who's seeking and trying to understand who Jesus is, as it tells us, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how He loved Him. But some said He couldn't. He could open the eyes of the blind man. Could He not have also kept this man from dying? And it says once more, Jesus deeply moved. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone was laid against it. And here in a moment, we'll see what takes place next. But the thing that, that I don't want us to miss, the hope is found in the person of Jesus and Jesus showing up. Though Mary and Martha struggled to understand, they both had hope when Jesus showed up. They both knew that He was the one that they needed. And particularly the presence of Jesus is seen in the way that He draws near to those who are suffering and to those who are hurting. It says that he, he, though he waited four days to come to Mary and Martha, as soon as he came, they had hope that Jesus was there. You see, in Mary and Martha's time, it took four days for Jesus to get to them. But do you know that in our time, today, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, that there's never a time when Jesus isn't with us in our hurting and in our sorrow if we've trusted in Christ. There's never a moment when we're without the presence of Jesus. If we've trusted in Him as our Savior, no matter the sorrow, no matter the hurt that we go through, we always have the comfort and the hope of His presence. Now, biblically speaking, Jesus has been raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So how can I say that there's never a moment that we're without the presence of Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us that we have the presence of God with us through the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 18, Jesus says, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come, but I'm going to send a helper and that helper is going to come and he's going to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth the world can't receive because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you know Him. He dwells with you and He will dwell in you. And then He gives these encouraging words, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And the presence of Jesus is with us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A, a truth that Romans 8 unpacks as it talks about all the trials and difficulties and the, the sorrows and the sufferings we experience. It says that the Spirit has been given to us to help us in our weakness. When we don't know what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You see, it's the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us which ensures us that the presence of God is with us when we go through sorrow, when we go through hurting. There's never a moment when we're without His presence. And the comfort that comes when, we, when we're stripped of our understanding and we're in, in our grief, that, that we know that God is with us. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He binds up our wounds. Just as He wept for Mary and Martha, Jesus <clears throat> in our suffering and in our hurting is there with us and intercedes on our behalf. We're never without His presence because we have the Holy Spirit. But do you also know that the presence of Christ is now present today through the church, the body of Christ? You see, it's in Matthew 18.20 a reference to church discipline where Jesus says of the church where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am among them. It's the presence of believers that brings about the presence of Christ. And it's also in, in 1 Peter in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 as Peter is talking about suffering. If you go and look at that chapter, it's talking about how we suffer well as Christians. 
sprinkled into his instruction about how to suffer well, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then he says in 1 Peter 4, 7-8, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Why does he say all of that? Because in our suffering, what we need is the people of God around us. What we need is the arms of Christ and the feet of Christ and the love of Christ expressed tangibly through other brothers and sisters in Christ drawing near to us and being together with us. It's the body of Christ that gives us the presence of Christ in the midst of our sorrow and our suffering. And just as Jesus shows up for Mary and Martha, draws near to them in their suffering and weeps with them, identifies with their suffering, their sorrow, and their pain, enters in. He does so today by the presence and by the body of Christ. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the body of Christ. My friends, that's why as we step back into whatever this new normal looks like, one thing uh, that, that we've all seen over this past year is, <laughs> I heard it said um, <clears throat> by, um, <clears throat> by Tony Evans, is uh, a Christian who doesn't go to church is like a, a married a man or woman uh, who doesn't go home. You don't have to go home uh, if you're married, but I can tell you if you don't go home, your marriage isn't going very well. As the people of God, when we, when we think about our relationships in the body of Christ, we need one another. And I think even more so as we face the difficulty and the, the struggle of figuring out life in a world filled with hurting and filled with sorrow, we need the body of Christ. We have the presence of Jesus that gives us hope in our sorrow and our suffering. And then the person and the work of Jesus is the second thing I want us to see. The person and the work of Jesus come together when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You see, we can't distinguish between the person and the work of Jesus. They go together. Jesus is not the resurrection and the life because He rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead because He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus did not, uh, is not the resurrection and the dead because He rose Lazarus from the dead. He rose Lazarus from the dead because in Him is resurrection and life. Jesus' person and His work go together. It's said by one commentator, if Jesus had not identified Lazarus when He said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb, that every tomb in the vicinity of Jerusalem would have been opened. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and at the speaking of His Word, Lazarus raises from the dead. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life in, so, in such a way that Jesus not only experiences an unexpected death, but in fact, experiences an eternally planned death by laying down His life on the cross for us and taking it back up again in His resurrection. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's saying to Mary and Martha, believe in Me and who I am as the Messiah, the Son of God. Martha gets it. She says, Jesus, I, I don't understand it all, but I believe You, that You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the resurrection and the life. But interestingly, as all of this unfolds in, in John 11, uh, particularly starting uh, in, verse, um, in verse 33, as Jesus observes all the weeping that was taking place, it says that He was deeply moved in the Spirit and greatly troubled. And then again in verse 38, it says Jesus was deeply moved again. Now these words uh, seem like they're saying that Jesus was just really sad over what was happening. But literally, these words mean that Jesus is stirred up in spirit. He's angry at what's unfolding. And commentators struggle and Bible students struggle to understand what was Jesus angry over? Was He angry over the unbelief that was expressed by Mary and Martha and by the crowd when they said, could not He who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Possibly. And those who point that out say that, uh, that that shouldn't discourage that Jesus is angry over unbelief. He's angry over unbelief while at the same time loving Lazarus and Mary and Martha and weeping with them. Those two things, we feel like they can't fit together, but in, in Christ, those two things fit together. But to me, I, I don't think the, the deeply moved and anger that Jesus experiences here, as it says in verse 33, is directly related to the disbelief, the unbelief of Mary and Martha or of the crowd, because uh, in verse 33, it, we haven't heard the statement from the crowd yet. In fact, I, I don't think it's at the imperfect faith of Mary and Martha or the crowd that Jesus is angry, but I think it's at, at death itself that Jesus is angry. 
Jesus is angry as He sees death itself unfold and the pain of death unfold. In fact, one uh, scholar of old, John Calvin, said, Christ does not come to the tomb as an idle spectator, but like a, a wrestler preparing for the contest. Therefore, no wonder that He groans again for the violent tyranny of death which he, had come to over, which he had to overcome, stands before his eyes. It would be this same word that Jesus expresses in the garden when he was deeply troubled. He was deeply troubled as he looked ahead to the cross because the cross was the result of sin and death. And Jesus is deeply moved and angry at sin and death and its terrible effects that it continues to reap on his people and on the world. And as he considers the terrible effects of sin and death, he's reminded of why he came. The purpose for which he came. It was fitting, and we'll conclude with this, as I was preparing for this sermon and thinking about 9-11, thinking about our current moment, uh, I came across a, a sermon from Tim Keller in this time. And on September 16th of 2001, his first address to his church after 9-11, which if many of you know Tim Keller. He's a pastor in Manhattan, not too far from where all of this would take place. His text for that day on September 16th was John 11, 20-53. Uh, and these words were what he encouraged his people with in the face of all the sorrow and all the pain that unfolded. And <clears throat> as I think about the significance of where we find ourselves, the hope that we have is in who Jesus is and what He's come to accomplish, His presence, His person, His work, and all of it unfolds uh, <clears throat> here in just in verses 39 and following. Listen to what it says. Jesus said after coming to the cave, take away the stone. Martha and the sister of the dead man said, Lord, by this time he will, he will be an, there will be an odor for He has been dead for four days. The, the old King James Version says, but Lord, He stinketh. Uh, he's been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted his eyes and he prayed what we've said earlier. I'm praying this so that they'll believe, Lord, on account of these people, they'll believe that you sent me. Verse 43, when he had said these things, um, he cried out with a, Lazarus, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a foreshadowing. In just a few days, <clears throat> a man dead like Lazarus will come out of a tomb. And it was a miracle like Lazarus's miracle, but with greater significance for us today because that second man who came out of the tomb is the hope for every person in the face of suffering and sorrow. You see, as it says in verses 45 and on, uh, many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen all of this. They believed in Jesus. Not only was the disciples' faith strengthened, those who didn't believe came to believe. And then some of them went and told the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are upset, and they realize if a commotion starts, if people start following Jesus, the Romans are going to rise up and crush them. And they, they lived in fear of that. And and it says the Caiaphas, the high priest, said, you know nothing at all, uh, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation. He said this on his own accord, being high priest the, the year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God those who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus comes to raise Lazarus from the dead, but John 11 ends with Jesus facing the certainty of His own death. And it was Keller in his sermon on September 16, 2011, he said Jesus knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause His own. The only way to bring Lazarus out of the grave was to be buried in the grave Himself. John 11 takes place to display the glory of God in raising Lazarus from the dead, but it ultimately points us to the glory of God to be displayed in Jesus being put in His own tomb and being victoriously raised from the dead. You see, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. You see, what Jesus is saying to break it down is through faith in Christ, it is not death to die. 
Through faith in Christ, it is not death to die. Death isn't the end for those who are in Christ. It's the beginning of life. But apart from faith in Christ, Jesus says not all who live have life. Your blood can be pumping and your uh, oxygen can be flowing. You can be living and breathing in this life and yet be dead to God. Because He says that those who live and believe in Me shall never die. See, Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. You can face death with certainty if you're in Christ. And you also can live free with confidence if you're in Christ. Free to grieve when pain and sorrow happens because we know that it's not God's purpose in the end, but He intends to work in all things, even our sorrow and our pain, to glorify Himself. We can be free to, uh, to, to not be crushed by our pain and our sorrow because we have hope in One who has overcome it, as well as we can be free to draw near to those who suffer and to those who hurt because we come uh, in the name of Christ, the very One who drew near to us in our sorrow and our pain. And not only who just identified with our sorrow and pain, but who ultimately goes to the cross. Not to suffer as an example, but to suffer as a Savior who would die for our sin and rise from the dead. Do you believe this? We're all going to die and we can't control when. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? As believers, we need to be reminded of what our message is. We need to be reminded of what our hope is. That we bear this hope that enables us to walk through life and grieve, but yet with hope. We don't grieve as people who are without hope. If we did, we would be of all people to be pitied, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But we grieve with hope knowing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Therefore, whatever you're going through, you don't have to be crushed by it. You have the Spirit of God who dwells in you and you don't have to do it alone because the people of God are meant to come around you. And if you don't know Christ, there's a way to face death with certainty. There's a way to live life fully now. New life now. Eternal life forever. That's what Jesus offers when He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Let's pray.